This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's uh, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And back by popular demand, I think Wally Richards on The Gardening is my most popular interview. And I would never would have believed it that um, I'd be on a gardening show. And I'm so proud, Wally, that you've agreed to come back on because people have been emailing us. I couldn't keep up with even passing them on to you. So welcome back on the show, Wally. Thank you. Yes, love to be here. And um, you've had a bit of feedback directly through your email. Oh, yes, yes. I've had a number of people um, contact me, uh, even experienced gardeners who've said, um, I thought I knew everything and I learned a lot. So that's all I, I had a I had a lady, and I, I'm sorry, I've been so overwhelmed too. I didn't send it on to you. Who had been gardening for 48 years, and said she learnt listening to our show. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. You must be very proud because it's a wonderful thing to encourage people to go gardening. I find. Oh yes, yes, yes. Can it's... I can I do a wee brag? Right, you're back into it. Yeah, well, I threw some seeds in some time ago for lettuces, and I can't believe it. The number of lettuces that we've had off that, and still, you know, here we are. I'm still getting lettuces every day for dinner, for a salad, and it's amazing. They're so beautiful. Um, They're cheap. It was just the price of the seeds, which I think was like $2 or something stupid. And I've had so much lettuces. I've saved so much money because you go and buy a lettuce every every couple of days. That's quite a that's that's real money, right? Oh yeah, and at the moment they're not cheap. Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't bought a lettuce for a long time, but stuff in the supermarkets, um, cabbages, broccoli, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you're talking like five dollars a head yeah. or whatever. Um, which is ridiculous, but then again, we can understand it too because of the climate, um, the flooding, etc., cetera, uh, the low lighthouse because of the cloudy, hazy skies. Uh, these things affect growth, and the commercial growers have been adversely affected. Uh, crops, as you see on TV, been wiped out. Pukekohe, um, um, Hawke's Bay. Mm. Uh, Plants that they had in, which they would have harvested in the winter time and been in the supermarkets, just got washed out, completely ruined. And after our show, I was inspired, and I went out and I've got my gardening notes in front of me, uh, Wally. You'll be pleased I'm keeping a diary. And on the 4th of April, I laid down the cardboard and I did an interesting experiment because the cardboard only covered half the area I was going to plant. And so half it's covered in cardboard and half isn't. So I'll see what weeds grow. And then I lay down the manure and then I put down a little bit of compost as specified by Wally. And I planted carrots, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, and onion as specified by you. I'm going to hold you responsible if nothing grows. But, <laughs> The great thing is, I found it so therapeutic that just doing that, 
just out in the garden. It was a lovely day. I was spreading the manure. I made the wee line. I put the seeds in, as you explained. And even if nothing, <laughs> if something grows, it'll just be a plus because it was, I so enjoyed it, Wally. Yeah, it's stress-releasing. Um, yes. A number of people find that, like, uh, they come home from work stressed out. They get into the garden. They potter around, um, do a bit of weeding, do a bit of trimming, do a bit of planting, whatever they're going to do. And within minutes, literally within minutes, the stress is gone. Mm. Um, it's just about as good as having a, a dog to pet. Well, yeah, and they don't let you eat dogs. Um so you get to eat the stuff that your garden produces. I've got to say, Wally, the other thing I've noticed about myself, I used to never take any notice of the weather. Mm-hmm. So I'd go out and if it was wet, I'd get wet. And if it was fine, I'd be fine. And, you know, I never, I never listened to the weather forecast or took much notice, but now I've become actually keenly tuned to rain. Right. Yeah, because I just noticed. Oh well, it rained last night, so um, you know my 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 garden will be good. I won't need to worry about watering it. No, it's a and I so I I feel a bit more in touch with um, the real world and getting my uh, hands dirty and doing something productive. And I also it's quite something to give your family a nice salad when you grew the lettuce yourself. Mm. Oh, it's... And the tomatoes. True, yeah, mm. for now, sure. I've got, I want to cover off <coughs> when you can, because I'm busy composting and I want to learn more about that. I've got three of your books, which I'm going to cover off. Uh, we can do that at the end of the show when people hear that uh, you're new to you, how good you are. But I'd like you to bring me up to speed with what the issues are in the garden at the moment in New Zealand. Um, at the moment, no, good question, actually. Um, okay, watering, as you uh, just said, should be reduced, particularly watering of container plants inside the house. Um, the We're heading into winter. Daylight hours are shortening, and plants that have been uh, looked after through the summer-autumn period and has been fed either with fertilisers or organic compost, whatever, um, they will tend to have soft growth. And on some plants, What does it mean by soft growth? Well, when you use nitrogen, you yep. encourage growth. That yep. growth is soft and sappy, right? And it's very vulnerable to cold winds and frosts. So... What we tend to do at this time of the year, we harden up our plants, get them ready oh. for winter. It's like putting a jersey on them. So they're going to not be so affected by the cold winds and the frosts. And how we do that is we use a product called potash. Now, potash is also um, called sulfate of potash or potassium sulfate. It's not a cheap product in actual fact, but what it does is harden up and firm up the growth and make plants more um, durable against drought, against wet feet, etc., and cold, right? Mm. Uh, then another aspect too, of course, is... Just interrupting you, Wally, 
are, are you talking specifically about indoor plants at the moment or out in your garden as well? Well, out in the garden, I flicked. Um, the indoor plants, you've got to be careful about watering too much because wet feet inside and the cold will mean that there'll be problems in regards to uh, root rots, etc. And a lot of people can lose plants um, in the wintertime if they carry on watering as they were doing so in the summertime. Got it. Now, outside, we've got plants that are vulnerable um, to frost, and that could be like uh, avocados, passion yeah. fruit vines, um, tender plants, citrus um, to a certain extent, especially down your uh, part of the country because you have a lot more colder than, say, up here in Martin or up in Auckland. So we need to protect them against frost. Now, in the old days, we used to um, put sacks over them, and that worked to treat, but you can't get sacks anymore. Then we would be putting frost cloth over, which is a more uh, newer item in the garden, and the frost cloth over them would give us reasonable amount of protection. But the problem with frost is you can look out at night time before you go to bed and it could be cloudy, windy and so forth, and it's not going to be a frost. It's Frosts only happen when it's calm and still, right? We wake up in the morning, the weather changed overnight, it went calm and the frost happened and you've got plants that are damaged. We have a product called... Vapor Guard, which we call Spray On Frost Protection. And what we do at this time of the year, we spray our tender plants with that. What's it that called, Wally? Vapor Guard. Vapor Guard. Yeah. Spray On Frost Protection. We spray over the foliage on a sunny day with this. It puts a film over the foliage. And as a result of that, the Plant is protected from UV, which means the plant can photosynthesize a lot better than normally. You notice within two or three days of applying it that the plant's foliage will go to a much darker, richer green, which indicates it's really working, getting energy from the sun and making carbohydrates. In the process of making carbohydrates, it also makes a thing called glycosol, Glycosol is antifreeze. So the plant actually creates its own little antifreeze system. And that means that when a frost happens, the cells still freeze, but they're protected by the antifreeze. And so when they thaw out, the leaves don't go black, right? Wow. Now, for the occasional frost every few days, that's great. It works a treat. But if you have two or three frosts night after night, the leaf doesn't have a chance to heal completely before it's hit again and then damage will occur. So if it looks like a second frost the following night, then you go back to your frost cloth. But it means you never get caught out. Um, mm. On that first night. On that first night. And it can protect down to minus three frost protection and one application lasts for three months. So... Um, an application now will take you right into winter and maybe depend upon how things go 
you may do another application three months later. Um, the other aspect of moment in the gardens is in the wintertime, a lot of plants, particularly citrus, the leaves will go yellow. Now, even if there's magnesium in the soil, there's not enough, and the cold of winter tends to lock up the magnesium in the soil. So we have this product called Fruit and Flower Power. It's 55% potash and 45% magnesium. And you should be applying that to your um, plants like your citrus trees, your preferred plants, not the deciduous ones like your roses because they're going to go to sleep over the winter. Um, in your veggie garden, you can do a sprinkling of that, and that will tend to, A, keep the foliage nice and green, which means plants can still photosynthesize, and it will also harden up the growth so the growth is steady and solid, not mm. sappy and um, susceptible to wind and frost. And the the potash and magnesium and fruit and flower power, you'd only put it in at the start of winter, like you wouldn't be applying that in summer? Um, yes, you can do, because fruit and flower power helps with the flowering fruiting process. Now, if, say, for instance, your tomatoes, if there's not sufficient potash, your tomatoes will be like the ones you buy in the supermarket, basically not very juicy and tasteless. Apply potash and you'll have beautiful, homegrown, lovely flavoured tomatoes. My goodness. Yeah. Potash helps, A, with the setting of the fruit, um, and it also helps with the uh, development of the fruit. I got a good crop of tomatoes, and mm -hmm. um, I... I, I let them get a bit overripe, and so then I, as they as they matured, I started picking them green and then just ripening them in the on the windowsill. But I was a little disappointed because they weren't very sweet. Mm, right. Could that be a lack of potash? Yes, definitely. Um, same thing applies with citrus. When your citrus fruit is dryish, uh, lacking flavour, once again insufficient potash. Um, a lot of the uh, fertilizers, fruit um, type fertilizers, etc., that you find in the garden centers don't have much potash in. And there's a very good reason for that because potash is very expensive. Mm. So um, they tend to skimp on that and only put a small amount in to keep the price of the product down. The, the one that we have, of course, is fruit and flower power. We, we get ton lots in from uh, fertilizer company of these two things. It's in a prill form, which means it slowly releases and breaks down on the soil. And you just scatter a little bit around each month during the period of time, the flowering, fruiting, or going into winter. Um, and even in the middle of winter, you can throw, throw just a little bit. Um, it's better to feed often a little than a great big heap once. So it's not enough to just rely on your horse manure and compost. You do need to supply some nutrients too. Yes. Um, if you want to have good results, um, other nutrients like using raw salt from the ocean 
using magic botanic liquid, uh, using rock dust, three sources of minerals, um, of which between them they should have about 114 different minerals and elements. So if you supply everything to a plant, then it's like a smorgasbord. The plant says, oh, I need a bit of that, a bit of that, and so forth. It's all there. It's good to go. If you don't supply everything, and, for instance, a tomato plant, I've heard, wants 56 different minerals and elements. I don't know which ones they are out of the 114, but if they're all there, the tomato plant just takes up what it wants, right? Now, if it's not and it needs an element, what the plant tends to do is take what's available and in their little chemical factory convert some of those to the chemicals they want or the um, mm. the minerals they want. It's not a chemical, but to the minerals they want. Now, in doing so, of course, it takes energy and time. And so what you lose by that is the growth of the plant. If everything's there, and you could use something like um, Himalayan salt, just a sprinkling of that in the root zone, it's, it's mineral rich as we know, and hey, presto, that will wash down into the root zone. The plant says, oh, thank you. I need some of that, some of that, and, and it takes up what it wants. And the plants grow better, healthier, and when you come to pick them and eat them, of course, all those minerals and elements are inside what you're eating. Wow. When you say, say, spread a bit of Himalayan salt around the root zone, What's the root zone? Oh, this is the area which the plant's roots are in. It's usually determined by what we call the drip line. So in a, it's easy to explain in a tree or a shrub. The outer line of the leaves is what we call the drip line. That's where the feeder roots are. Got because it. When, when it rains, the rain is diverted down to the ground through the foliage to the last of the foliage and then down into the soil. And and that's where the feeder roots are to take up that moisture. And that's where, in many cases, is where you feed the plant, um, if it's a tree or a shrub. If it's a citrus tree, the roots are actually underneath and out to the drip line. And if it's a cabbage, it's within that area underneath the plant. Mm. So that- my problem is, me being me, and this is one of the crazy things I tend to do, that if I think a little is good, then I always think that more must be better. Um, can you get into trouble putting too much nutrients on your plants? Yes. Um, there's some products, one of the which became quite popular a while back, Nitrofosca Blue, right? Now, Nitrofosca Blue is a fertiliser which encourages a lot of growth. And we had a TV programme some years ago where the prof would be out there in his garden throwing the stuff around like it was going out of fashion. And then people would be ringing me up and saying, um, look, uh, nothing grows in my garden. And I say, okay, what, what have you been doing? And we determined they've been following the prof 
on the TV and throwing stacks of this nitrophosphor blue around, which all locks up in the soil. It becomes unavailable to the plants, and the plants are actually starving and not growing. So <clears throat> too much is, is bad news. Um, you have to unlock it in the soil, and one of the ways you can do that, and some people find that if they take the magic botanic liquid and they give the soil a drench, in other words, you water it into the soil around your plants, then suddenly they all come away. Why? Because it's unlocked everything in the soil and it's become available to the plants. And you can have a lot of money locked up in your soil, um, which is doing no good at all. But when you're an amateur first season and you're looking at your soil and you're thinking, hmm, does it need more potash or does it need unlocking or like how do my, are my tomatoes going to be a bit tasteless because they're lacking some minerals? How's a poor fellow like me to know these things? Good question. Um, first of all, you've got another problem too, and that's pH. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was going to ask the you about that. pH of the soil. Um, like, some plants like it acidic and some plants like it uh, alkaline. Now, your brassicas, beans, peas, your most of your veggies like an alkaline or what we call a sweet soil, right? But your tomatoes and potatoes don't really want that because in the case of potatoes, if you apply too much lime, which sweetens the soil, you'll get potato scab and your tomato plants won't grow particularly well because uh, it's too alkaline. So you've got calcium in the form of lime. Now, there's basically two different types of lime. One is a soft lime, which generally comes from seashell deposits, etc., crushed up. And when you wet your fingers and put some of that between your fingers and it turns into a nice slurry, right? Then there's lime, which comes from limestone, which is once again powdered down. But when you put that between your thumb and finger wet, it's gritty. Now, mm. in the old days, in times gone by, every winter gardeners would lime their garden. And a lot of them were using um, powdered limestone, which would take 10 years became before it became really effective in the garden. But because they're doing it every year, once they hit the 10-year point, everything's looking good. If you're going to... I'm not use, sure I've got 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so you use the soft line. For instance, we have a line uh, which we call calcium and health. Not only is it a fast-acting um, soft line, it's a serpentine line, it's also... Um, we have put into it other minerals such as boron, selenium, um, sulfur, etc. So those additional elements will actually um, help uh, provide those health-giving nutrients into the plants you're growing. And then when you eat them, you're going to get your selenium, you're going to get your boron, you're going to get your sulfur. Um, so that's, are you better? Are you better to buy an all-in-one fertilizer that's been um, 
sort of proportions all worked out and how much to apply is on the packet and therefore you're taking some of the guesswork out. Okay. Your commercial fertilisers contain um, superphosphate. Yeah, couldn't think of the name for a moment. Now, superphosphate is reactive rock phosphate that's been broken down by acid. So when we apply um, lots of that fertiliser to the soil, we actually harm the soil life. The worms don't like it. The um, microbes and microcilia and fungi in the soil uh, are damaged by it. A small amount doesn't do much harm. That's fine. It's far better to use natural things such as your animal manures, sheep manure pellets, chook manure, uh, any animal manures whatsoever, cow manure, horse manure, um, and also blood and bone. So oh, yeah. those natural things placed on top of your cardboard, along with some minerals like ocean solids or whatever, or rock solid, and then your compost on top of that, and a good compost like the ones from Bunnings, from Dalton's, the value compost, yes. it's a good price. Um, it's got reasonably good food content in it. And then you plant your plants. Later on, um, after you plant them, you spray them occasionally with uh, magic botanic liquid, which yep. is putting more minerals in. And you have a great crop. No problems right. at all. So good taste. Don't get too intimidated by um, all the worry about the nutrients. What you do is you uh, set up a good base with your horse manure and then give them a, a little bit of a spray, and that should see you through. Right. And you also, if you're growing brassicas, um, most of your veggie plants, which is really uh, the way to go is to have a good veggie garden, uh, you need to apply some calcium in the form of garden lime. If you're going to grow potatoes, um, there's another source of calcium through a product called gypsum. Gypsum yes. is calcium and sulfur, and that's ideal for root crops. And a bag of gypsum uh, is very good value uh, whenever you're planting anything. You sprinkle a little bit of that in the planting hole. It creates a greater root formation faster and good to go. Four tomatoes, dolomite, which is magnesium and calcium. Okay. Um, I put a lot of gypsum on my soil because it was clayey. And yes. I read that um, when I was digging it, before I had 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 the benefit of your wisdom, I spent a lot of time digging and digging, turning it over, and it was just clumping up with clay. And I've spread uh, gypsum according to what the bag said. Um, and so I'm hoping that'll break down the clay. Is that correct? Yes. It separates the clay particles so it doesn't go yuck in the um, wintertime and like something you'd use for pottery. It's all um, clay, slimy. Yeah. Or in the summertime, of course, it dries and cracks. Mm -hmm. So your gypsum is good value to um, separate the clay particles and make a more friable soil for growing in. Yeah, and I got, I think, a, a, a good-sized bag uh, at Bunnings, and I, I, I recall that it was a lot cheaper to buy the bigger bag than the smaller bag. 
and um, so it wasn't overly expensive. Um, I should also say, Wally, because again, me being me, I got into this and I went on AliExpress and I bought myself a pH meter. And it also has a, um, I don't know if it's any good because it's $20 including shipping. It's um, got a pH meter and it'll tell me how wet my soil is. And because I wouldn't have a clue about the pH. uh, And I just think, I just find those things fun, right? Um, Should I be, do you need to be measuring the pH? Okay. If there's a problem and things are not growing very well, it could be a pH problem. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the cheap meters don't necessarily give you any true indication of what the pH is. So you could Um, be making it yourself in a worse-off scenario. It might read as acidic and you um, want it uh, more alkaline and you could be throwing a whole lot of calcium at it to try and get it back, and yet the meter doesn't move much. A true pH meter is very expensive, Mm. and they have to be calibrated by having what we call buffer solutions, and these are two known actual pH levels, 7 and 14, I think they're the ones, but I'm not sure uh, exactly. You put your probes in there and you adjust the meter, to get the correct reading, then you do the other one and adjust your meter again to get the correct reading, and then you take a reading. And you've got to do that straight away because temperature changes pH. See, Wally, I shouldn't have gone on enthusiastically on AliExpress and bought my pH meter until I'd spoken to you. Okay. This I would have easy- had $20 still in my pocket. Yeah. And there's an easy way to do it. Oh. Sort of. You know, um, if you have a spa pool or swimming pool, you get litmus paper, which has a colour code and which tells you what the pH is um, when you test your spa pool water, right? Yeah. You put your tester in, leave it there for a a little bit, take it out, compare it to the colour code, it will give you a pretty good indication whether – it's acidic or alkaline, and what you've got to do to rectify the situation. So what you do with your garden is you take some topsoil and ideally in non-chlorinated distilled water, you put a little bit of that into a jar and you give it a really good shake for several minutes, and then you put your litmus paper into the solution and take a reading with the litmus paper, and that will tell you what your pH in soil is. And that's accurate. And that's pretty accurate. Now, when you do your soil, because I'm thinking of the soil in the garden that um, I built, I've sort of got a layer of clay soil that I've put gypsum on. I've got my cardboard. I've got my uh, horse manure. And then I've got my compost. So... There could there be variations in pH in those levels, and could there be variation in pH across you know the 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 six meters of the garden length? Yes, it can be. Um, it's like 
if you're doing soil tests, you, you have to do a number of tests in different mm. locations to get a, a fairly overall picture of what conditions are like. Because, say, for instance, sometime in the past, um, somebody dropped a bag of something in a particular area, fertiliser or whatever, or lime, um, that area will be different to the surrounding area because of what's transpired. And when you take land and build a house on it, which was probably farmland, um, you don't know what happened in the past. So mm. you've got to try and, first of all, if weeds grow successfully, you know things are pretty good. So right. as long as plants are growing. If plants won't grow and weeds won't grow, you know you've got a major problem. Oh, well, that's easy, isn't it? And, of course, that uh, most people who are putting a garden in for a first time and not quite knowing what they're dealing with will actually have a – they'll be planting on top of grass. So they know it's not too bad if it can grow grass, right? Yeah, yeah. And – you were scaring me a bit there, Wally, because I was thinking, have I bitten off more? It seemed easy last week or uh, a fortnight ago, and now you're starting to talk about these nutrients, and I started to panic a bit. But where I'm planted, it had good weeds and a bit of grass, so right. it should be okay. Yeah, for sure. And, and if you look in nature, where nobody um, comes Does along, anything. interferes, <laughs> um, everything grows. Yes, it does. Um, it, it, yeah, those seeds are meant to grow, right? That's their purpose. The the interesting thing too, and some people, particularly some farmers and older farmers, have the ability to walk across paddocks and tell you what the pH is by the weeds that are growing there. Isn't because that great? Different weeds. Now, one of the interesting ones too in this country, we have a lot of gorse and people are killing it off with whatever. Now, to kill gorse, the simple way is you throw a whole lot of lime at it, garden lime. It changes the pH, the gorse can't feed, it dies. That's simple. simple. That's simple. Yeah. And the lime helps your soil for when the gorse is gone. Yeah. And because the New Zealand soils are naturally a little bit on the acidic side, um, I think it's because of our rainfall. Um, it tends to wash away the um, alkalinity of the soil and leaves it a little bit on the acidic side. So native plants grow very well in our soil because they have been here for hundreds and hundreds of years, so no problems at all. When we start to grow our cabbages, if the soil is on the um, acid side, they will grow to a point, but they won't fare very well. If we throw in a bit of lime, um, it changes the pH and away they go um, like nobody's business. So let's imagine that in the back of my property, I have a patch of gorse. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend I do? Go and buy yourself a bag of cheap lime from a stock and station agent, like Farmlands or somewhere PGG writes in. And it's cheap as, and then you just dump a whole lot of that uh, in the root zone. So underneath the gorse, just throw it. The rain will wash it down. 
and after a period of X amount of time, the gorse will start to show symptoms of not being very happy and it will die. And would that take weeks, months, years? How long would it take for it to die? That I don't know exactly, but I would say over a period of a few weeks to months. Um, it won't be years because you've changed the ability for the plant to feed. Some weeds also can be controlled by either making the soil more acidic or more alkaline, uh, which is something we tend to do um, in the lawn, not so much for weeds, but it does help with some, but it also reduces worm casts in your lawn for your roller-type mower. Um, and so we put sulfate of iron on, mm -hmm. supposedly to kill wasps, which doesn't really work. It only burns it. And that also, um, worms don't like a acid soil, so they take five and go off to the surrounding gardens. And you don't have worm casts in your lawn when you mow it. Mm. Well, we're on Reality Check Radio. We're talking to Wally Richards. Uh, we're talking about what we should be doing in the garden. And uh, let me summarise, Wally, and you correct me what I've got wrong because I'm furiously trying to learn and take notes and it's all new to me and today's been a little bit intimidating. Um, but we cut back on the water. We want to, i thinking of the phrase, harden the plants, not have soft growth. And um, we're wanting to be giving them some potash, correct? Yes. Um, and you, we spoke also of the other nutrients that we can be giving them. So you'll pick all that up on replay, but we've been talking about just what you need to do to prepare yourself for winter. Should we be worried about any pests, Wally? This time of the year, most of your pests are going to be reduced because they need temperature to breed. So uh, a lot of them will either hibernate sort of through the wintertime in cracks and crevices uh, or places where they can survive, or the eggs that they've laid uh, will be safe to go through winter. The ideal, too, um, when you live in an area where you have very hard frosts in the winter, that actually kills a lot of the insect pests that are harbouring over. They just can't stand the extreme cold. Um, in areas where the temperature is more moderate, of course, they survive a lot more. And as a result of their populations being able to survive, when it comes to spring and starts to warm up and they come out and start breeding, there'll be a lot of problems. At this time of the year, there'll be white fly and, and various insects um, still giving a bit of a problem because we haven't had too much cold as yet. So using things like neem tree oil, pyrethrum as a spray uh, to finish off whatever we can. If you've got a glass house and you finish cropping for the season, your tomato plants are on the last legs, etc. Now, there could be a lot of insect pests in there because it's a sheltered area. The best thing to do in your glass house at the moment, if your plants are finished, is don't take them out because you're only taking the insects that are on them outside, even if you're going to compost them. Leave them there and you get some sulfur powder and you burn it in the glass house. The fumes from the sulfur powder 
burning will actually suffocate and kill the insects that are in the house. So next spring, when you start off afresh with planting up your tomatoes, etc., um, it should be uh, relatively free of pests. So you shut all the windows, you uh, shut the airflow through the glass house, you get some sulphur powder. How do you burn it? Yeah, you put it on a steel plate or a spade or a half shovel, um, probably two or three tablespoons for a, a six by four glass house type of thing. And it's difficult to light. Um, you need a very strong flame to get it started. Um, but once it starts burning, it doesn't stop. It, it just keeps on going. Um, so you're not going to light it with a match, but you need a blowtorch or something like that yeah. to get it going. Blowtorch or alternately, if you get a little bit of methylated spirits and just wet a bit of it with that, the meth lights very easily without exploding. And then once it starts burning, of course, it will just burn its way into the pile. Um once you've lit it, you've got to get out because if you stay in there, chances are you'll never come out Wow! because it affects your breathing quite a bit, hence mm. the reason why it's so effective on the um, pests and insects that are in there. Mm. And then after you've finished burning, leave it for 24 hours and then open up the house and the plants uh, that are in there probably have suffered as a result and they've died as well. I've found some varieties of tomatoes can survive it, others can't, um, but it's it's only do it if the plants are at the end of their day, so it. it doesn't matter if you lose them or not. And that, and that basically rids the pests that would overwinter and hit your plants next season. True. Or... You, if you finish your summer crops, you could do that, and then you could plant up some winter crops in the glass house after okay. you've done it, like um, salad lettuces. Uh, if you've got access to uh, winter-type tomatoes like uh, Russian red, they're a good one to grow through the winter. Um, if you're growing in containers in the glass house rather than the soil, of course, you can move plants in and out. Yeah. and that's a good way to have a lot of I'm it. seriously looking out for a glass house. I just think that would be so much fun um, to, to have one of those. What about your lawn, Wally? Should we be doing anything with our lawn at this time of year? Here's a little tip. All the glass houses that I've got have been given to me, mm. right? Now, the reason being, of course, is uh, people don't want to use them. Yes. Um, or they've moved to a house and there's a glass house there, they don't want to use it, and so they contact somebody like me and say, do you want that glass house? Good one. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you put it on neighbourly, a little thing, saying That's anybody right. you told me that last time. Yes, I must yeah. do that. And you never know what comes out of the woodwork. Yeah, well, I'm also driving around, and I could put it on Facebook on our, we've got a little Facebook page for the local district, and mm -hmm. so I'm looking out for one. Also, um, when I'm driving around now, I'm keeping my eyes out for anyone having a disused glass house, and I'd knock on their door and say, I'd give you a couple of hundred bucks if I could dismantle your glass house and clear it, clear it out if you don't want it. 
Um, so I am, I am on the prowl. Uh, by the way, if I did do a glass house, uh, Wally, would you recommend that you have a concrete pad or how would you do the floor? Yeah, ideally, um, first of all, you've got to fix the glass house to the ground somehow. And you're either going to put a nib, concrete nib around with wood on top, in which you can b- screw your glass house to, because in a good high wind, uh, even a heavy glass house can be lifted and yes. shattered. So yes. it's got to be to the ground. If you put down a concrete pad, um, it's ideal, and then you can leave some bolts out to put your um, wood tantalized timber around, and then screw it to the yes. tantalized timber. Yes. So, and besides that, the advantage of having concrete in there is in the summertime when it's very hot, you sprinkle some water in there onto the concrete, and when it evaporates, it cools the house down. Goodness me, of course. And yeah. then in and then winter, it can keep it warm at night a bit, I imagine. It does. It tracks the heat. It holds the heat and releases that during the night. Wow. It reduced the frost damage. Wow. Now, I, I I can't remember where we got to. I was asking about grass. Is there anything I should do on my lawn? Oh, yeah. In the lawn at the moment, um, basically, if you've got thatch, now, have you ever heard that expression, thatch? Never. Thatch is the debris that builds up on the soil surface and when you walk on the lawn, the lawn feels spongy. Yep, I know right. that. Okay, so that's thatch. Now, it's an ideal time of the year to use a product called Thatch Buster, which is a liquid which you spray on the lawn, and it's actually food for the microbes that will build up their populations who will eat up the thatch, and according to the manufacturers, it will eat up an inch of thatch in a month. Goodness me. Right. It's a product we have, Thatch Buster. Um, the other alternative to using that is a bit of work. You get a rake, a particular special rake for thatching, dethatching, and that scrapes the thatch off. Or you go out and hire yourself uh, a machine, which will once again do the job. It'll rip all the thatch out. It also rips a bit of the grass out and makes furrow in the lawn. And you end up with a pile of um, thatch, which you've got to dispose of. Mm. So the easy way... Is get the microbes working. Yeah, get the microbes working. Now, interestingly, and we're going to talk about composting, if you mow your lawn and don't use a catcher, it looks pretty shoddy for few days, yeah. but within a week or so, it's all gone. Yes. Now, that helps build up thatch, but it's actually been recycled back into the lawn, and it's actually refeeding the grasses. It's a beautiful recycling method, and yes. except for the problem of thatch, it's an ideal way to do it. Besides that, the lawn clippings, um, unless you've got a particular use for them, going to compost them and so forth, um, not good. People that use weed killers in the lawn, like turf fix, etc. Um, of course, their clippings are full of herbicide. Yes. And if do they we, 
Do we have to worry about it? Do, should we worry about any dealing to any pests in the lawn this time of year? Um, at the moment, your um, grass scrubs are now working towards the surface, right? And so in the autumn, from the eggs that were laid back in December period, roughly, from the uh, adults, um, they've hatched out, they're eating the grasses' roots, and as it goes into winter, there's less and less roots on the grass, which means in the winter or in the spring, that grass will fail. Now, if people have got a problem from the past where they've had grass scrubs in the lawn, and the way to find out is you lift a bit of turf, you cut it with your spade, a square, slip spade underneath, take it out. The little white grubs that curl up when exposed, and if there's quite a few of them in a square foot, um, you've got a grass problem. Grass scrubs, adults, are attracted by light. So where there's a street light or where there's night lights in your house, in the lawn is where you'll find most of your grass scrub problems. and. They can be treated um, very simply with a product called neem tree powder, which you sprinkle on the lawn um, and lightly water it in. After cutting your grass, you do this, and the neem properties will go down and kill the grass crop. Another problem in the lawn that some people have in some areas is a native called piranha, piranha caterpillars, right? which actually turns out to be a moth later on. They come up at night time out of their little tunnel and they're a big greasy looking caterpillar and they feed at the base of the grass. And so you get these um, bear patches in your lawn where the prana are operating. Places like Wellington um, and Nelson, that sort of area, there's a lot of prana and you need to treat quite regularly for that problem. Other areas, yes, are there, but maybe to a lesser extent. The easy way to treat for a piranha is you mow your lawn and then late in the day, you spray the grass with neem tree oil. So when the grubs come up at night to feed, they feed on the grass, they get some neem in their gut, that stops them eating, and they go back in their tunnel and die. Simple as that. Isn't that simple? Now, um, you mentioned a product, and just to repeat it, for the thatch that gets the microbes eating it. What was that product again, Wally? The uh, Thatch Buster. Mm -hmm. Thatch Buster, that's what it was, yes. And and we can get that from you. Yep, we have Thatch Buster. Now, I just want to give everyone your contact details, and it amazes me that you don't mind people ringing you, and they could ring you with any particular problem that they have, and you'd happily take their call, correct? Yeah, no problems at all. Now, what? tell us your number, Wally. It's 0800 466 464. Say it again. 0800 466 464. I'll put it in the notes below the uh, – I'll make a note to myself, and I'll put it in the notes below you. And people can also email you, Wally. Yep, they, they can email me through wallyjr, W-A-L-L-Y-J-R, at Garden News with one N, so it's G-A-R-D-E-N, 
ews.co.nz. Now, if they email me, I would prefer they also put in their contact telephone number because a bit like a doctor, um, you go along with a complaint and he asks you a whole lot of questions so he can give you a correct diagnosis of what the (laughs) problem is. And when people contact me and says, oh, I've got such and such a plant, it's dying. I've got a bit of beer, beer plant, I've got a beer patch in my grass, and it could be one of six things, right? Right. And so I need to ask them a few questions so we can bring back to what is actually the real problem, and then we can then suggest a treatment for it. Well, I've got to also recommend your books Wally and you were very kind because I wrote to you and put an order in and you sent them to me because we sort of have this relationship and um and you signed them and I'm I'm delving into them Wally you're a great communicator and these are just fabulous books and I sort of are dipping into them and I've got Wally's down to earth gardening guide I've got Wally's glasshouse gardening and I've got Wally's Gardening and Health. And I have to say, I'm enjoying just having them there. And they're a great book I find to dip into, Wally. And it's a bit like listening to you on the show. Um, you're a font of knowledge and you can you explain it so that you think, oh, wow, that's amazing. You, you don't make it technical or too difficult for a person like me to understand um, I heartily recommend your books. And they also, when you read them, you want to get out and get gardening. I'm rushing off. I've got to go back into town this afternoon and I'm getting some litmus paper. So tomorrow I can uh, make an assessment of my pH. And I, I won't, I'll, I'll, when I, when my uh, pH meter from China uh, turns up, I'll test it against the litmus paper. But I should have known that to begin with because that's so simple. So thank you for that. Um, you are amazing, Wally. I got to tell you that. Oh, thank you. No, I'm just an old man that learned a lot. Well, it's an interesting thing because uh, you've experience counts for a lot, but it's also very clear that over those years that you've been gardening, you've also been very curious, haven't you? I've been sorry. You've been very curious, and so you just haven't done the same old, same old every year. You've tried different things. You've obviously talked to a lot of people. You've read a lot, and so you've got the experience plus the knowledge, the theory of how plants work, and it comes together in a very practical way when I talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very impressed. Now, I've been composting, Wally, and I did buy the – uh, I bought a lot of compost off Bunnings, and it's. I think I saw it this morning because I was in Bunnings. I think it was $6.90 down here. Everything's a bit dearer in Queenstown area, um, and I see that it's a bit cheaper in other districts, and I think it's done me well. But I also thought um, that I should do some composting. I got uh, uh, around where we live. There's a lot of um, horse manure. And I found people will, one guy actually delivers it in his little truck just to get rid of it. And he's been wonderful to me. Um, And so it saves me shoveling it up and dropping it off. And I've got another guy now who's, um, he's even lending me his trailer. So he gets his little tractor out, fills his trailer, and I just go and hook it on and I shovel it off at my place. Um, 
And what I'm doing, and then I got two big round bales of barley straw because I read this on the internet. So you can tell me where I went wrong. Uh, I got two big bales of barley straw. I got to say they were infested with this midge and I've been eaten alive by these midges and it's been driving me nuts for three days. It's the most irritating itch that won't go away. Um, and I read again on the internet that once it gets cold, the midge will settle down a bit and then I'll get back into it. So what right. I've done, Wally, is I've just put four waratahs around and I've wrapped a bit of chicken wire around and I'm layering the manure and the straw. I'm putting a bit of accelerator in. The 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 horse manure I've got is quite old. You could almost put it straight on, but I'm just composting it for to learn. And then I'm wetting it, and then another layer of straw, another layer of manure, and I'm going to build that up to about a meter. Um, how does that sound for a compost pile? Right, and you're just doing this in the open ground. Uh, yes. It's not in a container or anything. It's and only the only container it is is I've got four waratahs with. Uh, uh, chicken wire running around the edge, ah, right? Yeah, to yep. hold an edge, and that edge goes up nine hundred m, so I've nine hundred millimeters. So I, I figure I can top it up, put a bit of a curve on it, and it'll be you know a meter two or something by the time I finish. Um, and I'm keeping it moist as I go, um, and I'm hoping that that's Bob's your uncle. Yeah, it will break down. Um, the I would also throw in some lime every now and again as, yes. as you're layering it because you want to keep it alkaline because that's what the microbes that do the breakdown uh, want. Yep. You could also um, take some molasses, uh, like a tablespoon of molasses into a litre of hot water, let it um, dissolve nicely and then have that in a trigger sprayer and just give a spray of that every now and again as you're layering because that's food for the microbes. That's sugar, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's carbohydrates. It's molasses. Goodness um, me. Yeah. Molasses is a very interesting thing um, because it can be used to encourage plants to grow bigger and better in times when there's not so much sunshine. In fact, I call it liquid sunshine. So if you spray the foliage of plants, they're getting free carbohydrates through their foliage, which they don't have to generate from sunlight by photosynthesizing. So a nice way to uh, encourage growth during the times of the year when there's short daylight hours. Um. Yeah, what's it? Building you, up the I've never seen molasses. I mean, forgive me. I've never seen molasses for sale. Where do you get molasses? Supermarkets where mm. they have sugar, right? Okay. Um, it it has been a little bit more difficult to obtain recently because of the Corona thing, virus, etc., supply chains. Um, but as far as I know, it's there. Is, is gypsum is gypsum a substitute for lime? Uh, yes, but it doesn't change the pH. Gypsum is sulfur and uh, calcium, 
Okay. And it's pH so I'm better, I'm better off with lime. Um, to get alkalinity, yes. Got it. Definitely okay. straight lime. Um, so you could use what we call hydrated lime, burnt lime, um, into your um, compost that you're doing. What you're doing is a little bit like what we used to do in the old days was, uh, and this time of the year, you've got your leaf fall, the autumn leaves. Yes. Right? Now, you may harken back that people would make a hammock out of that chicken netting in their tree area, and it would be strung between a couple of trees, and they would take all the fallen leaves and they would put it inside that hammock and just leave it there to break down, right? Yes. That's yeah. the old way. And and it would break down over a long period of time. The modern way is you would take your leaf fall and with a rotary-type mower, you'd put it a patch of the lawn where it doesn't matter too much and you run your mower over it to break it up, right? Yeah. Then you get your pl plastic rubbish bags and you stick it in the black plastic bag and you can throw in a little bit of lime every now and again as you fill up the bag. You would tie it off at the top and then you would get a nail or a small screwdriver and poke a lot of little holes all over the bag to let the air into it, right? And then you'd throw it into a sunny spot somewhere out of the way and just leave it. The leaves will break down and cause uh, create what we call leaf mould. Leaf mould is very valuable in nutrients to use in the garden, your container plants, whatever. My goodness. So you could, like, have 20 bags, you know, in your garden just making compost from your leaves. Yeah, yeah. No trouble and, at all. And because um, I was a bit shocked because – where I'm living, I was chatting to people about composting and they're saying, oh, well, you know, I've got all these leaves and they pay big money to get them taken away to the dump. Yeah, and, and you're taking away a valuable nutrient. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Could, and, you, do, could you do lawn clippings like that? Yes. Um, lawn clippings, are, when they break down initially, are very hot and there's um, – you can put them in and layer them once again into your compost to get some more heat because one of the failings of compost or people that compost is they don't get enough heat in the mm. in the pile, right? And it's a heat that helps the breakdown. In the old mm. days, we used to have um, wooden compost bins. Yeah. We would have two of them or three of them side by side. So we would – throw all the stuff into the first one, and when they're getting up towards full, we would get the pitchfork out or the fork out, and we would take layers of that, throw it up in the air into the second bin. We were getting air through the material. Because the air is essential, right? Yeah, the oxygen is essential to the microbes for breaking down. So we would move from one bin to the other, and then we'll start filling up the first one again. And then a little bit later on, we'd move it, if we had a third bin, into the third bin. By the time we get to the third bin and it's ready to use after X amount of time because it's broken down nicely. Some lime uh, as we go 
And if you want to speed it up further, um, some molasses spray, and all those things help create much faster. But in actual fact, there's a better way. If you harken back to farm life in the past, in the veggie garden, they would dig a trench. The trench would be about one or two spade depths and a couple of spades width, right? A long trench right through the garden, veggie garden, right? All the kitchen scraps and, and stuff would go into one end of the trench, and as that came up to soil level, they'd cover it with soil, and then they'd put in front of that, in front of that, and so forth, until the whole trench was filled up, and then they would dig another trench alongside. They would plant their cabbages or whatever into that trench that's now covered over, and that would go, the roots would go down into this mass of goodness in the soil. What we've done there is we've allowed the natural microbes in the soil to do all the work for us mm. instead of us having to either um, aerate it or whatever. And, yeah. It, well, it, that's so interesting because 50 and 60 years ago, my father – and mother, my mother was a keen gardener in the flower garden, and my father was a very keen gardener in the veggie garden. The only thing he ever bought for veggies when I was a kid, and there were five of us, was he'd buy a sack of spuds once a year, and everything else we got from the garden, and he fed probably most of the street with vegetables as well. Um, and he never composted. Uh, what he did was exactly as you say, he would have a shovel and he'd dig, uh, uh, you know, three rows across his garden and he'd, he'd do sort of half an hour of coming home from work every night, except maybe in winter when it was dark. And then we would throw all the kitchen scraps and all the green waste that we got, the lawn clippings and everything like that, into his trench. And then before it got smelly or rotten, he would have dug it over again. And, I mean, he did that in that garden for 35 years, and he got beautiful soil at the, by the time that had been done. Right. Yeah, no. It, it's You let nature do the work for and, you. And no, and no nasty compost bin sitting in a corner somewhere. No. Um, the only ones that I favour to a certain extent is the compost tumbler because yep. um, – you turn the handle, it aerates it, and you end up with a reasonable good product. Um, but it, it's like when you mow your lawn and don't use your lawn clippings. Um, you leave them there, they go back in. Yes. Also, when you weed your garden, um, not so much in the wintertime, but in the summertime, rather than take the weeds away, just leave them on the bare soil. Within a couple of days, I've gone. Mm. I wondered. I wondered, looking back on it, because um, aeration is important. If with my father digging it into a trench, as you say, whether it's getting enough air to decompose. But what you're saying is, it doesn't matter to the plants because they just dig into that mass and start sucking it up. Yes, but see, in a situation like that, you have a lot of earthworms. And those earthworms are going in and out and up and down. Oh, and yeah, his, yeah, his garden was chock-a-block with worms. Yeah, and they do all that aerating for you. Okay. 
And of course, the, oh, everything is going through their gut and getting broken down, and they've got microbes in their gut. Mm, yeah, yeah. Now, isn't that amazing? One of the problems for people that live in towns or cities is when they water their garden, the water has got chlorine in it. The chlorine is there to kill bacteria so that you don't get a tummy bug from drinking um, your tap water. The problem is when we get the hose out and we water the gardens, and I can give you an example of this. In the springtime, when there's a nice wet spring, everything comes away to life. It, it's beautiful. Everything's healthy. Everything's looking good. When it dries out and we get the hose out with chlorinated water and we start watering, everything goes backwards. What we're doing is killing the soil life. We're upsetting the worms, and as a result of that, um, plants start to get black spot and diseases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Then, if we have a week of nice rain again, everything comes back to life because the microbes and the soil life can rebuild very quickly when it's not being killed off with chlorine. So, I discovered. This I'm just. Some- I'm just processing this, Wally. Um. Because it's terrible, right? You're sitting, uh, I'd never thought of this. You're sitting there, I need to water the garden, and you're pouring, you're trying to get a nice ecosystem going where there's microbes which are breaking down your soil and earthworms, creating a nice structure with nutrients available to your plants. You're pouring the water over, which has chlorine in it, perfectly designed to kill the microbes in the water, but you're putting it into your garden. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I discovered this some years ago. I never thought about it either. You just gaily go along and you're yeah. watering the garden. And what happened was I imported from Australia some freeze-dry microbes, which you had to put into a bucket of water with a, um, a heater element from an aquarium and an air bubble and some food. So you would uh, brew up literally a whole bucket full of beneficial microbes, which you could then dilute further with water and spray or water into your garden. And the instructions read, do not use chlorinated water. And I thought, well, obviously, because it would kill what you're trying to do. Yes. And then the penny dropped. But we do use chlorinated water in our gardens. So... I went out and I bought a housing and filter, a 10 micron carbon bottom filter, which I was told by the um, distributor that that would take the chlorine out of the water, right? So I, I connected that up to the hose tap or snap iron hose fittings and I started watering my garden. My disease problems just kind of overnight disappeared. No and, way. And then the other interesting thing is I used to, um, years ago, I was one of the first people to have rolly dogs, the Sharpay dogs. Yep. Now, the Sharpays inherently have genetically weak kidneys, right? Their life expectancy is somewhere 8 to 12 years, right? And it's quite often kidney failure that takes them out. I used to fill up a bowl of water from the tap, chlorinated water, put it down for them on summer's day. They come and sniff it 
and I'd walk away and go to a muddy puddle and drink there. I couldn't work out why they wouldn't. Of course, it was the smell of the poison, chlorine in the water. They had more brains not to drink it. And I'd and only better, dr- and a better nose. Yeah. And they would only drink it if there was nothing else and they were really thirsty, right? Now, once I changed to um, having filters inside the house and outside on the taps uh, to remove the chlorine, prior to that, my Sharpays lived somewhere between five to seven years and died of kidney failure in every case. After that, I had Sharpays living to 14, 15 years. Double their life expectancy from having no chlorinated water in their drinking water. Goodness me. So here's a question for you, Wally. Uh, Two questions. One is, on your garden hose, you just buy a 10 micron filter. And housing. And housing. Is that very expensive? We actually sell them. The housing and filter is $140, and that normally does about 16,000 litres of water until you have to change the filter, which is $40. And does it affect your pressure at all? Yeah, it will reduce down a little bit. It wouldn't be noticeable unless you have low pressure anyway or if you have a long irrigation system um, okay. which doesn't come back to itself, uh, yeah, it will drop it, but only minutely because... And, and what do you do for your drinking water, Wally? Um, we have, once again, under the bench, uh, a 10-micron carbon-bonded filter. The, fact, same, got this, the same filter? Same thing. Different attachments, so um, okay. you, you've got to have plumbing attachments for there. Outside... Um, they're good value because it's three-quarter inch screw-in snap-on hose fittings yep. that you put into the top of the housing, and you have a short piece of hose uh, from the tap going to that, and then you connect your hose or your irrigation system on the other side. And the beauty of them, too, is if you don't have a filter inside for your drinking water and cooking, then you can have a short piece of hose, which you take out, snap onto the filter, fill up flagons, take them inside, and you've got beautiful non-chlorinated water. Good, good work. And so you wouldn't dream, and I mean, as I understand it, virtually every um, council-run water supply has got chlorine now because they're so risk-averse. You wouldn't dream then of putting chlorinated water on your garden? Oh, no. Or to my animals, or to my chickens. It halves the life of chickens. Um, so I've read. Um, I have never tried to find out because I don't give them chlorinated water. Um, <laughs> it's a bit unethical when you chooks to do half and half and see what happens. Um, yeah, depends where you are and the amount of chlorine they put in. But here in Martin, there's so much chlorine in the water. We actually use the same ones on our showers so that uh, it removes the uh, chlorine. In Palmerston North, a housing and filter used to last me for the garden about two, maybe three seasons. Here in Martin, we're lucky to get two to three months out of a filter. It's so much chlorine. 
And you know your filter's gone because it clogs up with chlorine and you lose your pressure. Yes, and it stops. It comes through a dead stop. It won't let anything through, and it's black when you take it out of the housing and you put a new white one in and and away it goes again. Um, Well, that's a fantastic tip. Um, I'm into that, Wally, because um, aren't we glib? We're very glib, aren't we? Because you get, oh, well, put some chlorine in it, and you never think, A, what it could be doing to your dogs. You never think what it might be doing to your soil and the earthworms and the microbes and therefore your plants. And you're not particularly thinking about what it might be doing to the microbes in your gut. And also to your kidneys, which has to filter it out. And your kidneys are not replaceable so easily for $40. No. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Wally... We're, I, we could talk, you're wonderful. We're going to have to pull it to a close, but we're definitely, everyone, if Wally's agreeable, we're going to have him back. I want you, Wally, I'm talking to Wally Richards, the gardening man on here on Reality Check Radio. You're an inspiration and a font of knowledge. Uh, Wally's happy for you to email him or ring him. He's going to give me that 0800 number again, Wally. 0800 466 and he's got an email, which he's going to give us. Wally, J-R-W-A-L-L-Y-J-R at G-A-R-D-E-N-E-W-S dot co dot N-Z. I hardly recommend you uh, getting his books, uh, and I'm going to get into his product, and I'm going to be filtering my water from this day on, and I'm running off tonight to get some litmus paper. I didn't mention Wally um, because, you know, I don't mean to be reminded how impulsive and stupid I can be, but I've also bought uh, from AliExpress while I was fiddling on there. I bought a half-metre um, temperature gauge for $20, including... Um, delivery so i can stick it in my compost bin and just see how hot it is in there because i was quite surprised even with the manure sitting there when i wet it in a day or so man it was hot yeah that's good and, and hot. good good thing to do yeah for okay sure. wally uh you're an inspiration uh everyone i'm sure you've been enjoyed that uh you're on reality check radio that was wally richards our gardening man uh, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Uh, stay tuned. We've got a lot more coming. Thank you very much. And uh, and don't worry, we're going to get Wally back. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.